Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Honig, along with my partner here, Robbie Mitchell. Welcome to the next edition of Frame FM. Frame FM brings together leaders to share their perspectives on the role of technology in business operations and their experiences driving company-wide impact. Frame FM is brought to you by Frame AI. Today, we are excited to welcome Nitin Bajatia. Uh, hello, Nitin. How are you? I am doing well, and you started off well by nailing my last name. So I think we're going to have a great conversation. That's right. I did my research. Nitin is the uh, Senior Vice President at SAP CX Solution Management. Nitin has decades of CX experience that goes from SAP, ServiceNow, before that, Oracle, in way of a, a little acquisition of $1.5 billion, where he was at right now. So welcome, Nitin, to the show, and uh, we're excited to have you. And uh, I want to just start really with, can you briefly describe your journey to becoming the head of SAP CX Solutions Management? Sure. I think, you know, in many ways, uh, boy, you're putting some age on me by saying that decades of experience, but it's true, right? Don't worry, we're in the same boat. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's reflective <laughs> of you know the fact that this industry has evolved and grown and gone places that it's hard to anticipate. Interestingly enough, I started my technology career, not as a technologist, but as somebody that came out of industry. I was in banking, institutional uh, risk. Actually, at the time I was working at Nations Bank before Nations Bank acquired Bank of America and took the Bank of America name in uh, Midtown Manhattan. And I had also at the time been uh, attending Columbia, aiming to do a second master's, a little bit more technical, I would say engineering focused, but a little, little bit more technical. And one of my classmates had um, said that their, his group inside of Oracle was interested in bringing people on that had banking backgrounds. And I said, well, Oracle, I mean, that's like part of technology. Who transitions from you know, writing institutional risk to working at Oracle, but lo and behold, I did. And it's about 25 years later, I'm here. But all along the way from Oracle onto Siebel Systems, as Siebel was starting to ramp up in the market, again, in financial services, really started to understand the impact of the technologies that were shaping the CRM market. Right? And I, I joke now, 25 years ahead, that, you know, CRM, which stood for customer relationship management, really was customer records management. All it was was an activity log, you know, with a, against a contact record. And we've evolved quite a bit since then. And, you know, in between Siebel and on into right now, I meandered through what I refer to as the valley of management. Great potential, very hard to monetize. Uh, you know, it was at a company that was very innovative, but uh, ultimately we were taken private, learned some tough lessons uh, living in private equity, but ended up at Right Now Technologies, which, you know, a pioneer in self-service and, uh, really a leader in that space, uh, the first true omni-channel vendor out there. And as a result, we got acquired into uh, Oracle, was Oracle's first cloud acquisition. And so you know, for me, it was returning to Oracle, but uh, it was a learning how to teach an elephant to dance, right? That was you know, a big part of what I did at Oracle is uh, explaining how small deals actually matter as much as big deals for a legacy on-prem company. It was tough, but it was insightful. And then and from there, I ended up at ServiceNow because ServiceNow, as many know, is a, essentially an IT service management company. But the core of ServiceNow was built on a really strong platform. And the platform did something very simple but very powerful, which is uh, route work. 
And when I came into ServiceNow, they were in the process of building a customer service application. And I thought in many ways where they were headed is where I felt the market should be headed, you know, prior to even getting there. I mean, we got there. We actually built a pretty successful business. From there, I ended up at uh, SAP. I didn't expect to be at SAP, but it's been two years. And what I got pulled in to do was take a look at SAP and see where the possibilities were. And when I arrived here two years ago, I felt like a kid in a candy store because the SAP story, SAP is now a 52-year-old company, is really powering the global economy, right? It's been on all of the systems that power manufacturing and finance and supply chain, distributor networks and all of that. And really the CX story in all of that completes the sentence is the way I put it. SAP has fantastic assets in customer experience. Uh, We've built even more. And as we've tilted in this year into where I believe we should, you know, SAP really rightfully has a right to win is an industry narrative on customer experience because those industries that SAP focuses in on, we do everything else, right? So it's our right now to complete the sentence. And I'm super excited to have, you know, the portfolio of CX at SAP from a solution management perspective under me, and that's sales cloud, service cloud, commerce cloud, our Emarsis marketing engine. And then I work with my friend Chris O'Hara on customer data. Uh, customer data sits within our platform organization, but it's essentially the Rosetta Stone translator between point of experience and where the value resides in that inside an organization. So a lot of stuff there, but I figured I'd give you the full background. How would you describe SAP's philosophy when it comes to customer experience solutions? I think the philosophy is pretty simple. It's really about building out solutions that enable value to be transferred at the point of experience, right? And so uh, it's a value co-creation, right? Every point of experience, and let me step back and explain that customer experience in my, the way I define it is a very specific moment in time. It's the It's the point where a brand's promise intersects with a customer's intent. And that point presents an opportunity. It's an opportunity to sell more. It's an opportunity to service. It's an opportunity to drive optimization. But I think it's what's really important is that it's also an opportunity that you create value for both sides, right? So it's not simply about selling more or, you know, via commerce or, you know, sales cloud. It's about addressing a particular need customers have. So they walk away from that experience with some value. And the organizations that we serve get smarter as a result. Again, evolution from customer records management, as I joked before, it's not about logging the activity. Anybody can do that today. It's about what did that actively provide you to make your systems smarter, your people smarter over time. And that's effectively the way that SAP also frames it. I think that SAP historically has done a fantastic job when you about ERP and supply chain and some of the foundational components that help scale you know, value propositions, SAP has had a bit of an uneven messaging track record around customer experience. But our assets, the ones that I've largely inherited, are really, really good at articulating and enabling that value creation. Yeah, fantastic. Are there any unique challenges that SAP faces in the CX space? And how do they address that? Yeah, I think it first and foremost starts off, and let's be frank here, I think the three of us uh, are sitting in the United States and we've got our particular point of view on things. But SAP, not only being a German company, but sitting inside of the EU, has a unique set of mandates and requirements, you know, around privacy, you know, identity management that 
historically, CX vendors, and most of them have been skewed towards the U.S., haven't worried about a lot. Like we start right. with the foundation of being responsible, and that sounds a bit holier than thou, but there is you know material impact when you're operating a business that is founded in and rooted in the EU, right? And so that gives us some interesting guide rails to operate on, right? And so that factors into the way that we think. I think the other challenges that we have are you know, tied to the way that the business has developed. ERP dominates the SAP landscape. That's what that's typically what people think of SAP. They think of, you know, that product first. And for us to articulate the value of how, like I said, complete the sentence on a process is challenging when you're kind of already assumed to be dominant in one particular department within an organization. And really the thing that we're looking to break through is this barrier to say that applications aren't built for departments per se, they're built for executing the process. And I think that that's really where we are right now is we're trying to extend that message into the market with the great asset job. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Since a lot of the moves that SAP has made over the year, uh, the past year, it makes a lot of sense. Now, let's dive into how do you see the future of digital customer experiences evolving, especially within the advent of machine learning and AI? More about AI, but we all know machine learning has been around for decades. So it's really nothing new at the end of the day. It's more commercialized where my wife knows about it now, my mother knows about it now. But you know, talk about the future of, of that within SAP or without outside of SAP. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched upon a really important thing, which is that uh, machine learning and machine learning models have been around for quite some time. In fact, that uh, knowledge management uh, company that I worked for, I think we were ahead of the curve in many ways in building out what at the time was referred to as case-based reasoning. Now, that'll date a lot of people when they probably flashbacks to a lot of people as to what that was. But we were wildly successful. And this tells you how much we've advanced on certain vectors with machine learning. Our two biggest customers were Singular Wireless, which is now AT&T, and the U.S. Department of Defense. What's the common thread? They both had access to unlimited compute, right? And everybody else, we were just too expensive or too complicated to operate on. Now, a lot of things happened in in the subsequent two decades, part of which is that the underlying compute is, is not only more affordable, but it's also pervasive, right? So that means that those models that drove the neural engines that powered Nova, the company that I was at, you know, are now readily available. And the parsing of content from behind the scenes is now happening at a greater scale, right? And the impact is is, is profound. And you know, as you mentioned, it's the way that I frame it is actually earlier this year with the arrival of the LLMs and ChatGPT in particular, what used to be a geek conversation escaped the air gap from geeks out to the common consciousness. Now everybody knows about them. And I think the first wake-up call really was driven by the fact that this was the first real wave of automation that impacted tacit knowledge work. It really projected, there's a great blogger out there, Gitesh Rao, he writes a blog called Ribbon Farm. He wrote a blog post, it's worth researching and reading because it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek. He refers to it as the rise of mediocre computing. And what he says is, effectively, computers can now write mediocre text, right? It's not leading edge. But guess what? A lot of business work, knowledge work is just mediocre, right? There's another thing that he says in that in that blog post, which I feel is a wonderful analogy. He says, the LLMs and ChatGPT are to the high school term paper, what a calculator is to high school calculus. 
right? And I was like, this is fascinating because it, in many ways it is, right? The, it's an accelerant. Yeah, it's an accelerant. Is it innovative per se? Maybe, maybe not. Can you see through it? I think any, you know, solid uh, high school teacher can see through the quality of a, of a term paper and how much thought was put into it as opposed to how much aggregation of content there was. You know, I think broadly speaking for SAP, our approach has been what we reference as uh, business AI. And our business AI, we've been doing AI for quite some time, like almost all vendors, is anchored around three tenets. Should be relevant. So the models are being fed relevant data. And surprise, surprise, we own through the systems that power your business, most of that data sitting inside of SAP systems. So relevancy is something that we naturally can get to. Reliable. So, you know, we're built on our business technology platform, which is also hyperscaler enabled. So it's available around the world and it's responsible. So it has those guide rails, right? That I talked about earlier, you know, uh, some of it tied to the heritage of being in the EU, but also, you know, understanding process execution itself for 50 years has required responsibility. And just surfacing that up in the way that AI is also activated is how SAP operates. We have built business AI with our own proprietary models, but we work with everything from Cohere to Google Cloud, Hugging Face. Uh, We've got close partnerships with IBM and OpenAI. And in fact, in the CX portfolio, we're using, you know, a selection of those uh, LLMs, you know, as kind of the foundation models to accelerate on. Yeah. And that was, what was that? Back in July, you made an announcement, a billion dollars that you were making investments in some of the leading AI companies. That's right. I don't remember, you all know, putting me on the spot here as to what the specific amount was. And I think the other point I would want to make is that historically when SAP refers to numbers, they don't refer to dollars, they refer to euros, but that's a yep. side note. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to learn some of these things myself, by the way, as, uh, as somebody that, uh, you know, we are part of a uh, an EU-centric organization. Yeah, but it's a significant amount. Yeah, yeah I think uh, in July, I think the real amount is SAP has pledged $1 billion to invest in a number of generative AI startups with the aim of making their technologies more accessible to SAP services and sales and, and commerce clientele. So yeah, I'm sure they, the plan is for that to have a huge impact in the future direction of SAP. Because that was like an answer to May where you announced partnerships, as you said, with Microsoft, Google Cloud, IBM, and others to improve your AI offerings. So you guys are, you know, obviously very serious to be a market leader in this space. I think, you know, we've been doing this type of innovation in-house for a very, very long time. And the investments that the company has made have been there. You know, and by way of example, our commerce cloud, you know, has been using AI for embedded within, you know, the platform for many years. Our service cloud, we were using generative AI before the big announcements around ChatGPT as well. And we were using a Google model there for summarization. So... It's been there for quite some time. Nitsen, you said something earlier that was interesting I love, which is that every interaction with a customer, of course, they should feel, every CX interaction, they want to walk away feeling serviced or supported, and you, the org should walk away smarter from that interaction. And when we work with organizations, we see, I see three ways they try to learn and I'm curious what, like how this reflects what you see at SAP, especially because there's so much data in one place. One, the team itself gets smarter, like, oh, we build better macros or templates or processes. Two, other teams get smarter based on what we just learned, like the product experience or you know whatever downstream teams or teams that are 
generating the support interactions. And then CX gets to benefit from whatever else is happening in the organization that they've learned, you know, account health scores or whatever else kind of comes back into the, the context. I'm curious if you see any like investments in one of those and not the other, or like, how do you think about those different ways an organization can learn? I think, you know, so in customer service in particular, generally across all of CX, there's a framing that I think about that shapes the way that we apply what the opportunities are and how I think counter to even our customers are seeing it, which is that we now live in a world, and we have probably for the last decade or so, where organizations don't simply product or service and ship it and be done. We live in a world which I refer to as perpetual newness, right? There's nothing's ever complete, right? And somewhat altered the language and hijacked this thinking from Kevin Kelly, one of the great thinkers, you know, futures of uh, our era in his book, The Inevitable, where he refers to this as forever becoming. Everything is cha- is changing. You know, you wake up in the morning and your automobile's performance characteristics have changed because of software updates. Now think about that for a second. You used to drive something off the lot and it was good luck, you know, you're done. No longer that's the case. What does that mean? It has massive implications on everybody, right? So that means that every interaction that you have with a customer potentially impacts the next interaction, the way that the product is enhanced or fixed, and everything else down the line, right? All now is part of a broader ecosystem. I used to, you know, it used to be you would buy things and own them. Now what you do is you, you purchase them and you, and, you, and, you know, it's a subscription. And the onus now is on the company that continues to provide value. Right. And that means that honestly, in the, in the world CX, oftentimes the various departments of CX sometimes get relegated as afterthought. Right. And they're no longer afterthought because they are the extension of the organization. They're the touch point that interaction of co-creation takes place. So you really need to craft that and design that experience in a way that can help you maximize the value across the board. That makes, you know, I was having this discussion the other day that we live in a subscription world. You know, we have Netflix and Google and you know, the cars with the software, you know, and, and the question is, is there less of a value of the relationship between the brand and the consumer? And is that relationship not human? Is it more about the enhancement of what your the experience is, the updated of software, the ability to watch every football game on YouTube video on Sundays in your home and not going to a sports bar. Is the relationship between brands and their customers going to be put in the back burner more about showing them based on the product that they're evolving? No, I think it becomes even closer because now what you have is a customer in real time, right? So I talked about how earlier you know, access to compute was somewhat limited. Today, we have an explosion of microprocessors. And I think we're in the early days of customized microprocessors. The fact is telemetry sits on everything, you know, you know, today, which means that, and it's always on, always connected. When something's always on and always connected, customers are aware of that. They expect you to act. They expect you to know, right? So I actually think that the relationship becomes closer and becomes more symbiotic. But the expectations change. And so there's a really great quote from the uh, uh, former Secretary of Treasury and former President of Harvard, uh, Larry Summers, where he says, uh, nobody in history has ever washed a rented car, right? What they want is value out of that vehicle, right? They don't expect to clean it because they don't really own the, the, you know, the vehicle itself. They own the, 
get me from point A to point B. That type of behavior is now cascading, you know, into just about all walks of life, right? Ownership is a very different thing in this world. And, and it's really about delivering value, right? And that delivering value in an always-on, always-connected world almost requires a closer understanding of, of what that relationship is. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, you read a lot of these, the media, you know, talking about the gloom and doom of support agents based on AI, you know, and I keep on saying, well, we ain't going anywhere. So it, with that being said, in your opinion, and it's in, are humans actually more important now than ever in this machine world language world? Here's the way I look at it. Um, and this goes back to a fairly well, you know, established uh, norm from the, there's an industry organization within customer service called the Consortium for Service Innovation. And and, that, and I've been involved fairly deeply in that. And the consortium lays out, and they've done updates over the course of several years, you know, that customer service is a demand-driven economy. And the ability for you to supply based off of the demands of customer service will never, you'll never balance it out. And in fact, even well before the arrival of today's hyper on uh, AI, less than 5% of customer exceptions actually ever touch a contact center because much of it's self-serve, much of it is, quite frankly, what is the universal website for customer service? It's google.com. You start with a search, which means you self-serve. If you can't self-serve, you go to the website and maybe you try to get to a chatbot. But ultimately, when you get in and you need to interact with the human being, the expectation is that human being has access to all the information and data. So what you're seeing is no longer you know, the simple scripted call flow type of customer service, actually what you need is much more what uh, referred to as intelligent swarming. It's a higher value type of customer service. And in a world where there is perpetual newness, where products are shipping every single day that are and updates are shipping every single day, customer service is always going to be there. Uh, the quality of the interaction is going to improve because every one of those interactions nowadays is, is a triage event. It's not a response event. It's a, you need to understand the best way to handle triage is to actually have AI surface up relevant information while you're doing the triage. So at its core, is customer service human interaction going away? Yeah. No, not at all. I think the quality of it's going to improve over time as a result so, of AI. You know, it's, a, it's a good lead segue to the next question I have for you. In this new world, how do you see this evolution of skill sets required for customer service in the future? And you mentioned something about more collaborative approach it's more of a, a team approach across, I imagine, various departments to enhance productivity and, and provide accurate information and ultimately offer a superior experience for both the customer and the service agent. So, I mean, because the service agent is really the front line to the customer interaction. So are you saying that it's more of a, a collaborative team approach that companies have to start strategizing on? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the linear single customer service agent in the traditional tier one, tier two, tier three sort of model where you escalate tiers based off of complexity is, is starting to fade away. It's something that we think about. and We've built our service cloud, full disclosure, with a very tight partnership with Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, recognizing that, you know, triage event requires you to connect across the enterprise. And honestly, there's a secondary factor here. When you have products and services that are so complex, you can often have a large contact center where there may be what started off as maybe one to five to 200 to 500 agents working with the same problem. Now, you need to have machine learning recognizing it's a common problem 
So it can be surfaced into more of a project, right? And, and unify the triage, centralize the response, and get all 500 agents working on other things while you're solving for that problem, right? So this is where what was, I think, at its low point in customer service, a very rigid, scripted tier one, I can only respond with these eight steps. And if, if that doesn't help, I'll have to escalate you. That stuff is melting away. And we are now moving to a point where, you know, the role itself is a much more dynamic role, but it also is being augmented by AI. Yeah. We couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mean, here, I hate to give any plugs about what we're doing at Frame AI, but you know, we're unlocking that value of massive, like, dormant data sets companies have amassed over the last, like, decade or so. You know, and with, you know, LLM and machine learnings, we could automate this proactive analysis, uh, sourcing insights that would otherwise go completely unnoticed. And people are, are taking note of this. You know, we believe it's mission critical. It's absolutely mission critical. And especially, uh, like I said, when the products are changing, you know, faster than you can imagine. And customers, you know, today have choice at scale. They, you know, they just, they can transition. And really there's very low sunk cost oftentimes, right? When you purchase something, there's sunk cost. When you subscribe to something, you can walk away. And so the bar is even higher. Another question I have for you regarding customer experience, it extends beyond just the contact center or the service representative aspects. What should other departments like marketers or other departments within an organization be discussing in terms of their data? What should they be looking at now? So I think that, I mean, this is really why it's super exciting to be at SAP. Uh, you know, I often say that, you know, customer service is not an activity confined to a department. I don't know of a customer that ever wants to know the complexity of the organization they're dealing with, right? If they have an exception, you know, a desire to purchase, a desire to you know, uh, get something serviced. They don't want to be bounced around departments. That's just unacceptable today. And so I think, you know, when you think about it's access to the contextual information that lets you address that experience, right? So for SAP, we have the distinct advantage of we often know everything that's in your billing system, everything that's in your manufacturing system, all the part components because of our business network connectivity. We know where those parts came from, where they sit on the supply chain. So all of that data feeding into a particular exception that takes place in, in customer experience helps you drive greater context. Uh, so you're not you're not having to, like I said, in an always-on, always-connected world, the bar today for customers is you already know. You know the part or service you gave to me. So why are you asking me to validate a warranty or a serial number? Like, come on, you know, you already have that information. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well said. You know, SAP is, is known for its extensive expertise in, in various verticals. What I'm curious about, Natin, is can you discuss some of the unique challenges from these verticals that are more challenging regarding AI and machine learning than others? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. SAP goes to market by industry. And boy, the, what I can tell you is two years in, I'm blown away by the depth of understanding that we have in industries. And a couple of weeks, I will be in Waldorf, Germany at HQ. And it's a brain trust that powers everything from oil and gas to you know retail and wholesale distribution, manufacturing and sports and entertainment, You know, just amazing stuff. Now, what you have across all of these industries, and I think one of the reasons why uh, organizations ultimately rely on SAP is we also have an understanding of what the guide rails are for each industry. So by way of example, in automotive, there's regulatory requirements that 
we help organizations adhere to, whether it be manufacturing, you know, warranty requirements. We've got all of that baked into what SAP already does. We can extend that to customer experience. One place where we're doing this is out of uh, Germany initiative around supply chain called Katina X. Now, SAP is uh, one of the founding software vendors in Katina X. Katina X is really an amalgamation of, of all of the OEM uh, manufacturers as well as the suppliers and so forth. An area that we've actually built some functionality that we're going to make available to Katina X is uh, around supplier due diligence. So uh, lots of countries leading with Germany, obviously, and we'll see this probably in the U.S. pretty soon. They want to be able to have an audit trail around, you know, the ethics behind a particular part or, you know, that gets fed into the automotive chain. We have not only the ability to track that because of our supply chain and our manufacturing capacity, but when somebody raises an issue, a customer service issue, we can naturally route that across the entire enterprise to make sure that we address it and honestly comply with the regulations of Germany, where we need to audit that. We need to have an audit recording of that. So it's that type of depth of understanding right. that I think is fairly unique to SAP. And you sit right, you know, you're the black box that controls it for your customers, correct? Well, I, I would think that we're, we're more visible than a black box. I think a lot of it yes. is. Right. But what we are is in many ways, I'd say, let's put it, the brain trust, right? We've amassed, you know, 50 plus years of understanding that, like I said, it blows me away when I have conversations with my industry colleagues as to the depth of understanding they have of that industry. That's their job, but they also know how to articulate that in software, right? And we're bringing that forward in customer experience. Can you share what companies or customers are doing this really well right now when it comes to CX? So I think, you know, we've got a broad selection of companies that, you know, that we have had you know, great success with. When you look at customer experience, much of the technology that we power them, you know, uh, requires me that I can't share. But if you look at, you know, consumer products, you know, consumer packaged goods, and some of the largest vendors, global vendors, ones that are distributing in over 100 plus countries, not only do we manage their manufacturing and supply chain, but their you know, experience, whether it be from a commerce perspective, you know, setting up the shop so you can actually purchase the products, their distributor network, which is, I also believe is a critical part of the customer experience where the customer there is the end retailer. You know, we administer that. We have customer service for that, Salesforce automation. One of the really interesting components of our sales automation book is a, a small little niche area, which, again, you know, when I arrived at SAP, I said, wow, there's a fully baked capability here. It's called uh, retail execution. And what retail execution does is enables those field personnel in consumer product goods that when they visit a retail store, they can manage the stocking of that store, you know, updating the inventory and upselling additional product, right? So for us, that's really uh, our focus, right? And yeah, it's funny. When people talk about uh, CX, they always talk about it as customer facing, but it's not. Based on what you just said, it's about, you know, the supply chain, the manufacturing, the distribution. This all impacts customer service, you know, at its core. Is that accurate? Yeah, in, in fact, what, when I start the conversation, I typically say, we need to know what a customer is, right? And so a customer is an entity that sits outside of the four walls of your organization. So in many instances, consumer product goods, for example, the customer may be the retailer. It's not an individual, but that retail relationship has sales opportunities, has 
customer service opportunities is connected through a B2B digital commerce engine. I'm careful of using the term consumer because it downs what the end state is because we do more than consume. We're individuals, right? We have wants and desires as well. But every one of those steps, wherever there's a cross de- cross-organizational barrier is where customer experience can step in and augment that relationship. Right. So in your perspective, what aspects of CX solutions are often overlooked or underutilized and should have a little more attention to it as we're going into the future? So I think that there's two things that are really important. I think they're they're talked about a lot and they're they're given in a modern event-driven microservices environment, there's an opportunity to reinvent. One is having a true customer data platform, right? One that can aggregate not only the customer's information, but also the product and services that that customer is being served, kind of rounding out that story. Like I said, if I call in, why am I having to repeat the serial number for the product you sold me? You should know that, right? That, That should be table stakes today. That's one piece. And that's actually tied to the other aspect of this is the term integration to me is wide open for interpretation. Going back to the dawn of CRM where I was, right, you know, back in the days of Oracle SQL system, integration was hard integration across systems, sometimes dozens and sometimes connecting to mainframes. That based on the thing pretty much everyone does today, but that static innovation so oftentimes ties you into business models. Integration is not just at the data layer and process layer, integration is also at the communication layer, right? It's a, this is why, you know, like our relationship with Microsoft Teams is so important because so much of the cross-departmental interactions is happening through conversation. And for example, and this is a great place of applying AI, conversing across Microsoft Teams or if you have Zoom or whatever, and you have, you know, AI uh, listening to that transcript, um, that transcript can be summarized and then placed into the case what have you done? You've now accelerated the understanding for the next person that needs to review that case. It also can fed back in based off of the key markers that might've been lost in what we would call traditional integration because that traditional integration was just essentially data transfer or process integration. So we're leveling up what integration is. And I think that that's really a place for uh, customer experience to go next, extend beyond that department into a full you know, process across uh, all departments to deliver what customers expect. Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree. Something you said recently that caught my attention, you previously expressed the view that customer service should have a seat at the C-suite table. And your your argument was, it's where the brand promises and delivers. And I couldn't agree more. Could you dig deeper into that perspective? And have you observed any modern companies today positioning service at the C-suite level. Yeah, so I think it's it, oftentimes what I reflect are my customers. I've spent 25 years selling into customer service and I've, I've seen their frustration at times when they don't get the budget you know, that they need. Yet, yet you know, as they say, the factory keeps shipping stuff, yet we have less people to support all of those additional customers, right? And I think really what it is, is it's an evolution of understanding and evolution of language, right? I think that customer service oftentimes is relegated to the kids' table, you know, it's not at the C- C-suite, then it reports into operations as a containment mechanism. And I find that interesting. Increasingly so, my only human interaction with a brand oftentimes is going to be at customer service. And you have to think about it that way. Right? You purchase something online, 
you buy it, you have an issue, and you go through the process of self-service, and then finally you're calling in. And that person that is trying to help you is oftentimes dealing with antiquated technologies, and they have what I refer to as integration at the keyboard level, where they, they're all tabbing between systems. <laughs> yeah. And what gets lost there is value erosion, right? Uh, they, you may solve the problem, but I think less of you as a brand as a result. And honestly, and this is no knock at my friends in marketing and the CMOs are, you know, are wonderful human beings, but the CMOs project a brand. The brand promise is only delivered by the product or service you build. And are you there when I need me to be is manifested itself in you know, kind of a hard to monetize, but realistic thing. If in public companies, if you look at their annual reports, I think it reflects itself in an accounting uh, measure called goodwill. What is goodwill? Goodwill is the intangible between what the accounting you know, companies are your assets of your company and what your perceived value is. I'm not saying that you know customer service owns all the goodwill, but a bad customer service experience really damages your goodwill and impacts your stock price. And so from that perspective, a more executive level conversation on customer service, I think, is necessary. Yeah. You know, we always say, I always say, you arm your employees well with great technology, give the customers the best customer experience, allow the employees to be more productive. That's going to equate to better shareholder value. And companies that do that well are going to be checking the boxes and gaining market share. Companies that don't do well, you know, can potentially lose market share as we evolve. Okay, we're going to wrap this up soon. I'm just curious, when it comes to customer confidence in AI, it still remains a big challenge facing leaders today. You know, we know AI is very powerful, technical, and in some cases very difficult to understand. Do you have an opinion on how companies can close the AI trust gap with their customers? When you think about the ability of AI machine learning, there's a three-tier sort of approach that I think about this. And it's really the what, how, and why. So AI does exceptionally well in the what. If you throw enough examples at an AI, it can tell you the difference between a dog and a cat at a very high success rate. Right? We see this in customer service around auto categorization, classification of cases, where you know humans are typically around 80% accurate. And AI is starting to approach 90% accuracy. It's pretty good at that. And it actually re- reduces the cognitive load on an agent, so you don't have to worry about that. The next level up on that is, you know, how, and that's really the, how do I win at chess? How do I, you know, win at Go? It's the, how do I optimize a field service technician to get to the location they need to get to? So when you provide an end state, machine learning can optimize based off of its parameters. And it's doing a pretty good job of that. And I think we're seeing that, you know, infuse itself. The why part is really, I think, the open, you know, part of the interpretation. So I think why is, so why did somebody, why did I put on a blue shirt today? I'm sure if you throw enough machine learning, you could probably predict that I was going to put on a blue shirt. But is that value at this point? Probably not. So I think, you know, it's being judicious where you apply AI is critical. Making sure that the guide rails are there, that when AI is stepping out of bounds, that there's human interface, human interaction that can step in to train it or retrain it or take over, right? And I think that, that that's that's absolutely critical for any organization that's making material decisions on apply machine learning and AI technology. So 
Typically, we end the show with a question about the person we're interviewing, about you. Can you share with us something about you that many people might not know, your employees, something, a hobby, or something that you enjoy outside of traveling all the time, solving these mission-critical problems that customers face every day? Well, I think uh, I am not native here to the Bay Area. I've been out here in about 15 years. I grew up in, in Northeast Ohio. Why? That combination matters is I'm also a lifelong L.A. Dodger fan. And uh, the Dodgers just secured, you know, uh, another uh, NL West, uh, you know. Um, That's agent. correct. And uh, I will probably jump on a plane to catch a couple of games uh, down in Chavez Ravine. And hopefully that goes well into uh, into October, maybe into November. So uh, That's yeah. right. It should. It should. If they could get past the Braves, you know, that will happen. They're both great teams. Well, Natan, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. This was incredibly insightful. Enjoy your travels to New York and all the travels that you have scheduled in the upcoming days and weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for time. Thank you. 